Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writer's Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. I want to start this episode by thanking all of you who have dropped me a line recently. I'm always glad to get some encouragement or constructive criticism, and I'll always reply to anyone who writes to me. If you do enjoy the podcast and you want to do me a favour, please consider adding a rating or review to iTunes or whatever podcast manager you use. I want to give a particular shout out in this episode to Ted Inver and Nathan Fraser both of whom have been helping me out with some audio tech aspects on the podcast. Ted, Nathan, really appreciate your help, guys. Thanks. So let's get to the topic today, which is foreshadowing. I'm going to approach this by answering the questions, what is foreshadowing? What types of foreshadowing are there? What functions do they perform? And how can you use foreshadowing to best effect in your writing? So let's start with a definition and some examples. Foreshadowing is the technique of highlighting or hinting at something that will emerge as a significant factor later in your story. So to give you an example, imagine you read something like this. Jack found the revolver in his father's old desk. It was wrapped in a soft cloth. He'd never seen this weapon before, but it was clean and ready to use. So if you read this in a story, you'd receive this as a clue that something is going to happen with this revolver or in some way it's played a significant part in an event in the past that will have an impact on the story. So these words that I've just read foreshadow the role that the revolver is going to play later on. Or suppose you read this. As she left the house, three coal black ravens flapped onto the pavement in front of her. Their presence almost made her stumble. Now this sentence would give readers a clue that something may well be about to happen to this protagonist, probably something bad. The ravens themselves may not feature again, but their presence at this point indicates that something is about to happen. The great English playwright William Shakespeare regularly used foreshadowing in his work, sometimes with natural phenomenon like the weather indicating the mood of what is to come, or maybe something even more explicit. For example, in the play Romeo and Juliet, as Romeo heads towards the party where he will meet Juliet for the first time, he pauses and says to his cousin Benvolio, My mind misgives some consequence, yet hanging in the stars shall bitterly begin his fearful date with this night's revels. And indeed it does, as Romeo goes on to meet Juliet and so begins a chain of events that will lead to their untimely deaths. So what kind of foreshadowing is there? Well, I've identified four different types here. First of all, using your characters. This is where your characters say something or exhibit an emotional state or experience something. And all of that can be a clue as to what is to come. And the great example of this, I think, is one which I've used before, which comes from The Lord of the Rings, where Frodo and Gandalf are talking about Gollum. Frodo says this, It's a pity Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance. Gandalf replies, Pity? It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be eager to deal out death in judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. My heart tells me that Gollum has some part to play yet, for good or ill, before this is over. And indeed, this is the case. Gollum, in fact, has a central role to play in the closing scene of the story. And that role is foreshadowed in that conversation there. You can also use the experiences of a character to foreshadow what is to come. If your character has a heart murmur in chapter one, they might well end up in the operating theatre or worse by the end of the book. Secondly, you can use the setting itself to hint at what is to come. So, for example, your setting might be a dark house, or the weather might herald a storm that's brewing, or maybe there's a crack of sunlight after days of rain. All of these things can foreshadow a change in the whole tone of the story. Consider Harper Lee's classic To Kill a Mockingbird. In this little clip, brother and sister Jem and Scout Finch are walking along together. 
The night was still. I could hear his breath coming easily beside me. Occasionally there was a sudden breeze that hit my bare legs, but it was all that remained of a promised windy night. This was the stillness before a thunderstorm. As I've mentioned, Shakespeare frequently used the weather as an indicator of the overall tone of the action in his plays. In Julius Caesar, on the eve of the fateful Ides of March, a storm rages in Rome, so we know that something bad is coming. Third example, you can use specific props and events with special meaning or even prophetic qualities. So, for example, again from The Lord of the Rings, we find a scene where Aragorn is in Rivendell looking at the shards of Nazil, the sword used by Elendil to cut the one ring from Sauron's hand. And this foreshadows the fact that that sword will be reforged as the new blade Anduril and will accompany Aragorn's rise to the throne of his forefathers in Gondor. Of course, as another example from earlier on in this episode, we have the guy who finds the gun in his father's desk. So here you've got specific items, specific props in the scene, which are foreshadowing something that's going to happen. Fourthly, again involving characters, you can have just a simple chance encounter, a random event which foreshadows things to come. Imagine you're reading a story and in chapter one, the author presents you with two women in the waiting room of the office of a private eye. Each is desperately trying to ignore the other. Now this tells us that they probably do know each other and that in fact the relationship between them may well be a significant factor in the story that we're about to read. Or suppose you're reading some romantic fiction and two people bump into each other on a bus or in a queue or at the coffee shop. In this instance, a chance encounter is pretty strongly foreshadowing the fact these two characters are going to come together in some way. That particular kind of foreshadowing, especially in romantic fiction, is potentially so obvious that it's almost too obvious. It can almost become a cliché. So these are types of foreshadowing. But what are the functions of foreshadowing? Well, I've got three here. First of all, there's what I call literary foreshadowing, which really means that if you do it properly, this is a chance for you to show off your skills as a writer. Then you can give your story an added poignancy and beauty. This sort of foreshadowing will draw the reader in and immerse them in the power of your setting and your characters. Secondly, there's covert foreshadowing and here the writer tries to slip in a detail without the reader noticing usually they want to present the detail as tiny or so obvious that the reader will just ignore it and this sort of foreshadowing is particularly prevalent in detective fiction and I was going to give you an example of this from a detective novel but presenting a spoiler for a mystery novel seems particularly wrong so I've contrived a simple story of a crime and added some covert foreshadowing as a clue to what's happened in this instance it's a case of not so much who done it but how did they do it I'll read it to you and you can see if you can work it out. Our victim is a rich industrialist. He's having dinner in his study with international business partners and rivals from around the world. To complement the global theme of the guest list, he has had some ice sculptures made of world icons. Christ the Redeemer from Rio, the Eiffel Tower, the Statue of Liberty. But our man's real passion is all things Japanese. We see it in the kind of food he's serving. Donburi, ramen, sushi, takusashimi. Within the room itself, we see evidence of two of his hobbies. An elaborate collection of Japanese nadachi and katana are presented over one wall. And there's also a number of koi swimming happily in open tanks around the dining room table. The party is eating and chatting when suddenly the lights go out and the room is plunged into darkness. There is chaos. People bump into each other. There's noise. Sculptures tip over and smash. Fish, both on the plate and water, become upset. When the lights come back on, our philanthropist is lying on the floor, stabbed between the ribs with what looks like a thin blade. The police arrive. Everyone is searched. The room is searched. There is no knife in the room of the kind that would have caused the wound. No one smuggled anything in or out. The cutlery has no hint of blood on it. The Nadachi and Katana blades on the wall are checked. They're all in place. No one has touched. How did he die? Well, the clues are there. Do you think you know how the murder was committed? I'll let you know at the end of the podcast. 
So my third and final function for foreshadowing is plot foreshadowing. And this type of foreshadowing arises where the writer has a good idea of their storyline and uses some foreshadowing to give the plot credibility. This kind of foreshadowing relies on the writer doing sufficient preparation in the planning and plotting stage of the story. So the writer has done sufficient planning that they can see where their plot might not quite hang together, where there's something that needs tuning, where some foreshadowing might help to support the story. So, for example, suppose your final scene will require a feat of exceptional strength from your protagonist. If that person seems unremarkable physically all the way through the book, but then performs this incredible feat in the final scene, the reader might well be incredulous. And as you know, if the reader stops believing in some aspect of the story, they might well stop believing in the whole story. Certainly they'll enjoy it a lot less and you might lose them. If you know that your protagonist needs to be strong in the final scene, you concede in a few characteristics to foreshadow that along the way. Maybe he or she was in the college weightlifting team. Maybe they love working out at the gym. Whatever it is, some subtle and consistent foreshadowing can make their heroics at the end, in the final scene, quite believable. So to benefit from the use of plot foreshadowing, you will need to have done enough planning to identify where these plot issues will be. And that's another reason to get your planning done well and early. So how do you get the best out of foreshadowing? Four quick tips to help you. One, I've just covered. Use it to get your planning and plotting right. Two, deliver on your promises. This is part of your implicit contract with the reader. If you foreshadow, you need to deliver. Remember the example of the revolver in the drawer from earlier on? The guy finds the revolver in his father's desk. If you use a device like that, then you'll have to deliver on it. That revolver needs to be used or its prior use needs to have an impact on the story. And this principle of storytelling has parallels in playwriting. Chekhov famously referred to this when he said, remove everything that has no relevance to the story. If you say in the first chapter that there is a rifle hanging on the wall, in the second or third chapter it absolutely must go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be there. Now in reality, a gun on the wall in the first chapter doesn't have to go off by the second or third chapter. But if you say that it's there and you don't use it, your readers will feel cheated and confused and will disconnect from your story. Third tip, don't be too obvious, don't be too subtle. Every kind of foreshadowing requires a balance. It's very important that you get that right. Your reader wants to be aware of the foreshadowing without it becoming too obvious. Where this balance is will depend on your story and your genre. If you've got any doubt, use your beta readers or the review process to check that you've pitched it correctly. You might find that something that's very obvious to you passes your beta's readers by completely. You might find something that you think is very subtle makes your readers feel like they're being hit over the head. Fourth tip, show don't tell. Yes, it's show don't tell again. When you foreshadow something, show it. Don't use the narrator to tell the reader. It's clunky and it puts the reader out of the story. And at this point, I'm going to dare to use a quote from the great writer Agatha Christie to show you how I think you shouldn't do foreshadowing. Now, Agatha Christie is a phenomenal writer. And if you're a fan, please don't be too upset. But in her book, and then there were none, she uses foreshadowing in a way that I would take issue with. The scene, and I'm going to read a few words from it, is in a train carriage. An old man addresses one of the murder victims. I'm talking to you, young man. The day of judgment is very close at hand. Subsiding into his seat, Mr. Bloor thought to himself, he's nearer the day of judgment than I am. But there, as it happens, he was wrong. That last line, where she says, but there, as it happens, he was wrong, pulls the reader out of the story for a moment. Now, arguably, Agatha Christie could simply have stopped before that last line and have her character, Mr. Bloor, think, he's nearer the day of judgment than I am, and left it at that. So that's foreshadowing. That's it for this episode. I hope you found this useful. As ever, if you have comments, please do get in touch. I'm at andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com 
also on Twitter at Writer's Toolbelt. And if you're wondering about my industrialist example of how he died, the answer is that he was stabbed with a piece of ice from one of the sculptures, after which the weapon was simply dropped into the tank with a koi where it melted and disappeared. Well done if you guessed that. So today I have referenced the following works, Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare, which is in the public domain, The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, published by HarperCollins, and Then There Were None by Agatha Christie, also published by Harper, and To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, published by Harper Perennial. I've also quoted from Anton Chekhov. My thanks as ever to Podcast Themes for the Music, and thank you to you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>